research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view, this is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power. The co-host, as always, is uh, Eric Eggers, author and vice president here at the Government Accountability Institute. Uh, Eric, good to see you. And we have a very interesting special guest today to talk about Washington corruption from a pretty unique angle, a unique angle, an informed angle. And uh, more important than anything, I'm excited to have somebody on that's like clearly more successful than you in life. Right. I mean, you have been an accomplished author. You've done a lot of cool things. But my man was in the top 20 of Vanity Fair's most influential and successful uh, mafia related businessmen. And yes. so, you know, I wonder, like, how do you actually do you have to turn over 990s for that, Michael? I mean, how does Vanity Fair go through and, and rank people of that nature? I have no idea how they came up with that chart. <clears throat> I always say they didn't ask for our tax returns, so I, I don't know how they got that. But uh, <laughs> well, the voice the voice you're hearing is uh, Michael Franzese. He uh, is a second generation member was of the Colombo fine, uh, crime family, uh, and then he had an interesting life journey. We're going to talk about that, and he has written this terrific book. Now, I ran across this book on Amazon. Uh, we get sent books. I get sent books all the time. This is one I actually ordered and paid for because I was so intrigued about it and by it. It's called Mafia Democracy, How Our Republic Became a Mob Racket. Uh, and Michael is certainly somebody that can talk about that with authority. So, Michael, just briefly tell us how you even conceived of the idea, a guy that was in organized crime, who's left organized crime. How was it you even conceived of comparing, as we often do on this podcast, our national government with the manner in which organized crime operate, operated in the United States? Well, obviously, my perspective, because not only did I grow up in a life, but I participated in it for well over 20 some odd years. And, you know, I'm just seeing so many comparisons, Peter. You know, it's all about power. It's all about control. And uh, it's all about money. And the way I'm looking at our government in these past several years, especially, you know, lately, I mean, I've never seen corruption to this degree, to this degree in my lifetime. And understand, I've, I've lived under FBI investigations for over 20 some odd years, but I've never seen it to this extent. And, um, you know, the comparison is very valid. I mean, we were all about money, power, control. And I see the government acting exactly the same way. Very Machiavellian. Well, so it's, it's very interesting just at, at the uh, 60,000 foot level. It seems to me that the key elements of the way in which organized crime operates and our federal government increasingly operates is fear. Uh, this notion that something can happen to you, that this powerful force, whether it's a mob boss or the government, can do something to you. They can either you know, harm you, they can harm your property. So as part of the problem, the fact that government's just gotten so big and powerful, there's so much more they can do to people. And you have people in Washington who want to use that leverage against people they don't like or that they want something from. You know, absolutely, Peter. And I was in uh, in Europe for two months. I just got back about a week and a half ago, and I had two speaking events. We always open it up for a Q&A afterwards. 
And so many people were concerned about the 87,000 more IRS agents that are being uh, hired, you know, and, and they realize that these, these agents are going after middle class people to do audits and collect more money. And uh, I was amazed that that was a, a major um, source of discussion, you know, with two groups that I was with. And these were several hundred people in each group. And, and so many people were concerned about it. Again, it's overreach, it's government power, it's control, and it's so obvious. It really is. You said that you feel like it's um, gotten worse recently. I'm wondering if you feel like there's a tipping point, if you can point, put your finger on a moment when you said, hey, th- this feels like it's shifting. And I would just point out, in doing a little bit of research uh, before we had you on the, the show today, um, if you look at the net worths of members of Congress, there's been a dramatic increase. It's what we spent a lot of time on here. In 2018, we saw a 20% increase in the net worth of average members of Congress. And then by 2020, more than half of them had become millionaires for the first time ever. So it's insane just how egregious the accumulation of wealth for these people has become. And I just wonder, do you feel like there's a relationship there? Or or when do you feel like this trend maybe hit a tipping point? Well, listen, you know, it's unbelievable that these these uh, congressmen and congresswomen, they come in as blue collar earners, you know, they have blue collar, blue collar, net worth, and they go out as multimillionaires. Now, obviously, it's not happening on a government salary. There's a system in place that they use, and they use to their advantage. They don't care about recessions or anything else. And, you know, people don't realize this. They don't pay attention to it. You know, one of the, uh, uh, it's very been very encouraging that the reviews on the book have all been so similar in that, Michael, now I get it. We thought this was happening, but now we see it. You've laid it out very simply. And people are being outraged over it. I'm getting so many emails and so many uh, messages on social media. People are outraged by what they're seeing in the book. And this is reality. We did a lot of research. This is not a fluff piece. We didn't do it just to garner attention. And, you know, I got to tell you, the reason I wrote the book, look, I'm 71 years old. There isn't much more that they can do with me. I'm not too concerned about things in the future. But I have seven kids. I have six grandchildren. And this country is just not the same as it once was. And it's so Machiavellian. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's Machiavelli had this, this saying. I want you to tell me if this fits. People in power, when, when he was advising his prince in the book, The Prince, how to maintain control of his kingdom, he said, you can do anything you need to do to maintain control. That's the number one priority. Maintain control. You can lie. You can steal. You can cheat. You can even kill. But the outside world, to the outside world, you must always appear to be upright, honest, and having integrity. Well, that's our government. Especially, you know, lately what we're seeing in these investigations. And look, you know, I get knocked on this all the time because I was a Trump supporter of his policies. I tell people, listen, we're not going out to dinner. He's not dating my daughter. He's not my best friend or my neighbor. (laughs) His policies were good for America. I mean, it's outrageous what they did to this man for four years in office, how he was a threat to their power and how they just kept coming at him. And even after office, I mean, they want to put him in jail. I mean, this is this is unbelievable. And yet you get Hunter Biden, who's under a five year investigation, who it's in right. It's in print. It's on his laptop. If you or I were to do that, Peter, we'd be in jail for 100 years. Yeah. Some of the things that he's done. So, I mean, if people can't notice this corruption now, there's something definitely wrong. 
Well, we are talking to Michael Franzese. He is a uh, former member of the Colombo uh, crime family. He's written a terrific new book called uh, Mafia Democracy. Uh, and the subtitle is How Our Republic Became a Mob Racket. Uh, and he's somebody that certainly should know. Um, so, Michael, I'm interested in you've been kind of in both of these worlds, in a sense, in, in the organized crime world. And now you have studied uh, uh, politics and the way that government operates. Give me a sense. What 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 would the attitude be of of mob bosses towards politicians? Did they trust them? Did they look down upon them? Did they think they were easy to buy or at least easy to rent? What was this perspective uh, from inside of the mob as it came to politicians in America? All right. Well, let me let me give you an overall general feeling about mob bosses and, and guys like me at one time. If yeah. you weren't a made guy, if you didn't take the oath and become a made guy in that life, you were a sucker. That was the term. You could be the president. You could be a congressperson. You could be the pope. You were a sucker if you didn't take that oath. We looked at politicians as tools. We didn't respect them, really. Um, we just used them to get what we want. They wanted money. Off. Look, politicians want money and votes. And yeah. we had money to support them financially. And we had votes in the unions that we controlled. And as a result of that, you know, they would uh, they would be friends of ours because they wanted something in return. I mean, I, I use politicians uh, when I was in the gas business and, um, you know, we were collecting taxes. You need to be licensed. And I got 18 licenses uh, by paying off politicians. And I wasn't qualified to get a license at that time. So, <laughs> you know, but um, we use them. That was it. And they tried to use us in return. But we knew it. And uh, it was a mutually beneficial relationship. Yeah, it's remarkable. Um, and, you know, if you watch the old uh, movies, the Godfather movies and others, you got this sense that obviously there was some sort of sense of code within uh, within the families themselves. You don't get that with politicians. But it seems to me the one difference you could draw between uh, the mob bosses and politicians is simply the fact that politicians get to write their own rules. You know, mob bosses don't. They try to write their own rules or they manipulate the rules, but politicians actually get to write them. And we've written about things like milker bills where members of Congress introduce a piece of legislation. They don't expect it to pass. They don't want it to pass, but they introduce that bill because it's a form of leverage to extort campaign contributions from the industry that it targets. So it seems to me that when it comes to ethics, to to a certain extent, you could say that the mob bosses, there's, there's, there's a little bit more straightforwardness to them because at least they don't wrap what they're doing in the mantle of, you know, we're doing this for the common good. We're doing this for the public. Uh, it's brazen. It's transparent. Um, with politicians, they try to cloud it and couch it uh, in all this ridiculous rhetoric that they're really doing it for our own good when they're not. They're doing it for their own benefit. Oh, absolutely, Peter. With the mob guy, what you see is what you get. We don't pretend to be, you know, helping out the community. We don't pretend, uh, you know, to be uh, to be that kind of person. We're there to make money, to have power and control. And that's the bottom line. But you're right. Politicians, again, very Machiavellian in their style. You know, look, you know, one of the things, Peter, I have to say this, that's that's really got me so upset is what's happening at our southern border. And the reason for that is, Basically, the, the amount of opioids that are coming a, a, across the border. I spoke to 850 um, undercover drug enforcement agents from the state of Texas. And they told me after we you know, had our seminar, we, we, we kind of conversed afterwards. They told me they're not even getting 10 percent 
of the drugs that are coming across the border. They're getting very little help from the federal government. And then they showed me something that, you know, for me, I've seen a lot in my life, but this scared me. They showed me a block of uh, fentanyl. They drew it. And it was about, you know, a foot and a half square and Mm -hmm. maybe two inches thick. And they said to me, Michael, this block of fentanyl can kill the entire population of the world, 7 billion people. Mm. And they they weren't fooling around. And they said, we can't control it. And for me, you know, an administration that understands that this amount of opioids is coming across the border, and they know it, and, you know, using the guise of we're being, uh, you know, friendly to people that need asylum, and that's what the United States is all about. It's all nonsense. It's a smokescreen. They're bringing these people in here, you know, giving them cell phones and, and, and whatever it is they can to appease them. And then when it comes time to vote, you know, hey, it was Joe Biden that brought you here. Just make sure you, you vote the same way if you want to stay here. And that's all it is. And this, this is horrible stuff that's going on, Peter. I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime. And honestly, I've never seen guys on the street operate this bad. When we did things, we did things to our own, basically. You know, people that played with us and maybe they got caught up in something they shouldn't have. But, but you know, what's happening now to innocent people, and it's just horrible. I, I've never seen anything like this. And, and I'm a mob guy. I spent 20 some odd years on the street. So I've seen a lot, but I've never seen anything like this. I mean, well, think about what you just said as far as like we're hiring 87,000 new IRS agents, not 87,000 Border Patrol agents when you've got a massive problem at the border. And I think, you know, we've actually done some research into the border situation, some of the fentanyl related topic. Do you feel like that's part of some plan? Like, do you feel like that there are larger forces at work? It's not just part of immigration, but somehow the Biden administration's OK with the amount of drugs that are coming across the border? Well, I think they're, they're not bothered by it. It's right. obvious if they were, they'd do something about it. I think that's the biggest epidemic we have in this country right now, you know, because I'm into this. You know, unfortunately, we had a tragedy very close to us. Uh, uh, a young man took an Adderall that was laced with fentanyl. He didn't know it. And, uh, you know, within five minutes, he collapsed and he was gone. A 24-year-old young man who was an athlete and everything else. So, um, this is such a powerful uh, destroyer and dis- uh, of human lives and mostly young people that are going, uh, you know, that are falling. How could you allow this to happen? Yeah. I mean, even mob guys wouldn't allow this to happen. I mean, h- how could you allow it to happen? Is it part of a bigger plan? I mean, you know, the concern is if what we're hearing is correct, that, you know, most of this is being sent over to, to Mexico through China and then brought into the United States. Is it a plan that China has to weaken, you know, the United States? I don't know. I mean, we can think of all different things, but the bottom line is we could stop it. We could really stop it. And we're not. And it's getting worse. And I tell you what's really surprising to me and shocking to me, uh, Michael, about fentanyl is if you think about it, it's really not just a drug epidemic. It's more like a chemical weapon because you just talked about the tragedy that um, has touched your family. The vast majority of people that are dying of overdoses or fentanyl are not actually out trying to take fentanyl. They're taking other things and the fentanyl is laced in it. So I'm not saying that, you know, somebody should be taking cocaine or marijuana or getting, you know, illegal Adderall. But the point is, this is not a normal drug drug epidemic in the sense that 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 people are overdosing on heroin. They know they're taking heroin. It's being injected in. And I think you're quite right. China's playing a a, a central role in this. Uh, and it's just shocking to me, as you talked about as well, that 
there's really not the sense of urgency. I mean, let's remember the Biden administration created a czar for the monkeypox. Oh my gosh. And and nobody had actually died. I don't know if still anybody has died from the monkeypox, but we have close to 100,000 people a year dying uh, from fentanyl. And there seems to be no urgency, not just in the White House, but on Capitol Hill as well, where Congress dawdles. They don't really pass any legislation to deal with any of this. It really uh, does show at minimum a failure of leadership. At worst, it shows that, you know, maybe something else is at work here. And, and I guess that's the other question, Michael, is when you look at the fact that when Washington does things, it can be criminal and extortive, but sometimes when they don't do things, it's criminal and extortive as well. And maybe this is an example of that. I agree with that. I mean, look, you know, again, comparing to the mob in our communities, we were very protective of our own communities. You know, we kept crime out. We treated the people right because even even and don't don't get me wrong. I'm not glorifying the life of some of the people in it. You know, we understand what it was a criminal organization, no doubt about it. Uh, but at least we had some decency about us to protect our own. We didn't want things coming into our neighborhood. We made sure crime was out. I just don't understand. I mean, they've taken power and control to a degree that I haven't even witnessed on the street. And it's getting worse and worse. I mean, I just don't understand it. I, I really don't, Peter. I don't, I don't know what, what their motive is. Is it to stay in power forever? It seems that way. Um. But to the detriment of people, I mean, actually hurting innocent people the way they are, it's it's horrible what's going on. This is well, you more know mafia like than the mafia. You said that you would think of people that hadn't taken the oath as suckers. And it's hard not to look at the last two years and the amount of control that the pandemic era allowed the government to assume. And then the hypocrisy, like, you know, Nancy Pelosi says everyone's got to stay locked in. But then she's going to the salon, right? Gavin Newsom's closing things down and he's going to the French laundry. Um, the school superintendents are taking their kids to private school while keeping their schools closed. Also, partly because of the unions. I'd love to get your take on why you think unions have become so guaranteed to be liberal now. But it, it's almost like it's, they don't care about us. They're just going to do whatever. They act as if they are in a protected class. Like They act like they are in the mafia because they're above everybody else. Well, exactly. And, and, you know, Nancy Pelosi, not only did she shut that place down, but she threw the woman under the bus. Right. Yeah. I mean, that woman was getting hate mail and she had to close her place down. I mean, it's just such a, a blatant disregard for people that they feel are not in their status. You know, they, they don't care. They use them. They're pawns. You know, we had a we had a store in San Francisco, a, a pizza store that we had to close down because the homeless and the drug addicts were hanging out by that. We couldn't get rid of them. We couldn't control it in any way possible. And this woman, this is her state. This is her state. Yeah. They do nothing in here to help the state. You know, Newsom, the same thing. I live in California, obviously. And um, I don't know. They just enrich themselves. They get you know more powerful, wealthier, and to the detriment of the people that put them in office. Well, we're talking to Michael Franzese. His book is Mafia Democracy. Uh, he has a history in organized crime for more than 20 years, uh, and he's now written this book. Uh, Michael, that kind of begs the question, I guess. We're here talking about these substantive issues. You're not in the life that you were in before. Can you tell us the story of how you left that world and how you moved to where you're interested in the things you're doing today? 
Well, you know, Peter, I, I, early on in my life, I really wasn't much interested in politics. You know, we used politicians when we could and, you know, we did our thing. But obviously now I'm a father and a grandfather and I have a different perspective and I'm, I'm very concerned. I love my country, you know, despite anything else. I love my country. I always did. And, um, you know, I was able to walk away from that life. There was a set of circumstances. I mean, I, I was a major target of law enforcement. I was indicted seven times. Mm. I had two mm. federal racketeering cases, one state racketeering case. Giuliani indicted me on a major uh, case back in 1984. I was the first major mob guy he indicted under the RICO statute. Fortunately, I was acquitted in that case because, uh, you know, he told my lawyer in the courtroom that if he convicted me, uh, he was going to give me double what my father got. My father got a 50-year sentence. He was going to give me 100 years. And that's the mm. kind of time they would give him mob guys. So, you know, yeah. I realized when the RICO statute came in and you got to give Giuliani the credit or the blame, whatever side you're on, for using that statute so effectively against the mob. Uh, he figured it out and he used it effectively. He was putting guys away left and right for you know, 50, 100, 150 years. Guys were turning informants left and right. And uh, I just saw this was time for uh, an exit. And I had to, you know, devise an exit strategy, but I didn't want to cooperate. I didn't want to testify against my former associates. So, you know, I kind of played a dance with the government a little bit, letting them think that I was going to help them. But then in the end, I didn't. It blew up in my face because uh, yeah, I ended up going to prison for uh, eight years. But it was the best eight years, as it turned out, because it kind of cleaned the slate for me. And um, I moved out to California, away from the life. Uh, I did have some close calls. My father was very upset with me. Mm. Uh, the boss of my family, Carmine Persico, contract on my life. I mean, I had to mm. go through all of that for several years. But at the end of the day, without getting you know sidetracked on the story, I just outlasted everybody. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, when Fortune magazine put that list of fifty up, you know, fifty wealthiest, most powerful bosses. Today, 30 some odd years later, 48 of them are dead. Mm. And the 49th is still doing time in prison. And I'm the only one free and alive. So, you know, to say that I've been fortunate and blessed is an understatement. But, you know, I saw that the life was in trouble. I, I really did. You know, you know, the one thing, too, Peter, when I, I saw the FBI's crazy tactics my whole life, you know, framing people and, you know, intimidating witnesses. But people give the FBI a pass when they're going against the mob. Because, okay, the mob is bad anyway, so the FBI right. has to stretch the rules. Right. But they don't realize how dangerous that is because when you give the government an inch, they're going to take a yard. They never give it back. If you see, if they see that they can get away with an abuse of power against the mob guy, well, they're going to do it against somebody else when it benefits them. And that's exactly what's happening now. Exactly. The FBI has become a tool of this administration. It's horrible. This is supposed to be an independent law enforcement, um, you know, agency, and it's not anymore. And that's so dangerous to people. You know, I try to make people aware this is not about Republican or Democrat. It's about you as a, a citizen of America. You can't allow, you cannot give the government the power to overreach. The government cannot break the law to enforce the law. Because you're giving them too much power. As you remember, they control the military. They control every branch of government. They're, they're the, the, the power in every state. You cannot give them more power to overreach because they'll use it against you. People don't get it. I think it's so brilliant how you use uh, Machiavelli to as the frame to an, analyze what Congress and the government has done. But one of the, my, my favorite things I've heard you say is just when did you read Machiavelli and when do other people in that life read Machiavelli? 
Well, it's practically required reading when you go into prison. You know, you read, <laughs> you read the prints and then you realize, hey, that's us. That's what we need to do. You know? uh, yeah, he's a fascinating, he was a fascinating guy. I mean, some of his, uh, you know, his perceptions and his outlooks were, were spot on, but then he, he stretched it a, a quite a bit. Well, so, Michael, um, I want to get your final thought on where do we go from here? Uh, obviously, you talked about the fact that um, the FBI and federal authorities, prosecutors like Rudy Giuliani in the 80s, used the RICO statutes to buff, bust uh, a lot of organized crime in the United States. Where do we go as citizens if we are living in a mafia democracy, which is the title of your book? Um, what do we do? We don't have RICO powers as citizens, but we do have other powers. So what do you recommend people do in order to turn this ship around in our country? You know, you know, Peter, one of the things that that bothers me the most is today, you know, especially with social media and the way that we communicate, you know, instantaneously, we see politicians making promises uh, and breaking them the next day. They lie to us. They lied throughout the pandemic about so many things. And we just give it a pass. We say, well, that's politics. It's okay. It's not okay. You know, I tell people, if your wife, your business partner, your friend lied to you once, oh, okay. Second time, you start to get a little, you know, the third, fourth, fifth time, hey, that's it. I'm not accepting it anymore. But we accept it from our politicians. Vote them out of office. Hold them accountable to their word, to their campaign promises, to what they're supposed to do for us. We still have power at the voting booths, I I hope. I mean, you know, with all the talk of fraud in the last election, I I don't know. I don't want to get into that. But uh, we have power in the booths. We can't accept this type of behavior from people that we entrust with our lives. I mean, we're trusting them with our lives and and the lives of our children and grandchildren. We have to hold them accountable. And if they're not doing the right thing, vote them out. Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter who it is. Vote them out of office. There's got to be some good people there that really do care about others, that want to do public service. You know, the problem now, too, is look how expensive it is to, to win an office today. I mean, unfortunately, what are our politicians? From the day they get into office, they're out there raising money again. It's all about raising money for the next election because they don't want to lose their their position. It, it's a tough system to buck, man. I don't know if it's out of control, but I think we have to try to harness it by holding them accountable at the voting booths. That's the best we can do at this point. Well, as we always say here, uh, you cannot take the infra- information and the corruption that we expose and get discouraged and walk away. The title of your book is Mafia Democracy, but it is still a democracy. And Michael's right. We can vote people out, people from both political parties. Uh, Eric, what are your final thoughts? I'm just super impressed that uh – Mr. Francese went from being the first person to be indicted by Rudy Giuliani to then have Rudy Giuliani write the forward to his book. Like, (laughs) how did that happen? But (laughs) you know what? I was shocked myself. Rudy and I, uh, a fellow by the name of Joe Pagliarulo, Joe Pags, he has a big radio show. Uh, He was friendly with Rudy, friendly with me, and he brought us together after 30 some odd years. And uh, it was a nice reunion on the air. And then I asked him, I said, listen, you know, um, if you believe in this, Rudy, Write the uh, forward. And I was shocked that uh, I was really impressed on what he wrote. I really meant it. It meant something to me. You know, you know, 
it, it's crazy in life how, you know, your arch enemy at one point in time can become a friend later on. And I'm finding that so often, even people in law enforcement. You know, Peter, people have said to me, oh, Michael, you got to love the defund the police deal. I said, really? I said, I have five daughters and a wife. When they walk down the street, I want them to be protected. Who's going to do it? Me? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's the police. This is the most insane idea I've ever heard. You know, if uh, Rudy Giuliani would have came to me 35 years ago and said, Michael, don't worry, we're not going to indict you under the RICO statute. If we lock you up, we'll give you a bail the next day. And don't worry about it. We're going to go soft on crime. Does he think I would have said, oh, great, I'm going to go straight now? <laughs> you know? Hey, it turned your life around and reformed you as you have testified here. And, uh, Michael, we really enjoyed the time with you. We're talking with Michael Franzese. He wrote a book called Mafia Democracy. As I said at the beginning, we get sent books all the time. I actually went on Amazon, found this book, ran across it, ordered it, spent my own money on it. Um, I would recommend everybody pick it up. Thanks, Peter. If I can just mention uh, michaelfrancis.com, you can go on and you'll get an autographed copy from me. Absolutely. I would recommend everybody do that. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, be with us. And for the audience out there, thank you also for listening. You can find our podcast at thedrilldown.com or wherever fine podcasts are featured. Thanks so much for joining us.